Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. Mina Salami and I had this conversation almost a year ago when her book first came out called Sensuous Knowledge, a Black Feminist Approach for Everyone. And this conversation is deep, rich, and I kind of just allowed my own unconscious to follow her in the most curious and wonderful conversation that takes us from languages to culture to what inclusion really means. And boy, if there were a book that I would encourage you to invest in, especially if Black feminism is important to you, there are some ways that she'll get you to think outside the box and re-own something in yourself that ultimately will help us all connect better. Mina Salami. Can't wait for you to meet her. So Mina Salami, I know that we've rescheduled this and I just want you to know that that's par for the course for the Sidewalk Talk podcast. There's always this magic involved in these conversations. And so I'm actually glad that we've had to reschedule a few times because I'm trusting the magic of our conversation, especially after digging into your book, Sensuous Knowledge, which by the way, I want a little props because I've sold many copies of your book. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. but I want to kind of locate you a little bit. And first of all, I'm going to locate you in a really funny way. Would you be willing to tell me all the languages that you speak? Of course. Um, but I first want to say thank you so much for having me on this podcast. It, it truly feels like an honor to be speaking with you. And it also does feel uh, like some kind of serendipity after, after the many reschedulings um, since which you've been on holiday and I have to and you know hopefully we'll bring some of that kind of invigorated spirit into the conversation. Um, languages that I speak, I, I speak uh, English although I tend to think of myself as uh, not fully as a fluent English speaker um, and that is because I uh, speak these other languages which are uh, Swedish, Finnish uh, fluently and then uh, I speak, I used to speak Spanish pretty much fluently, but I've forgotten most of it now. And I speak German as well uh, at a conversational level. Um, and I spoke English until I was a teenager um, living in Lagos in Nigeria. And then I moved to Sweden when I was 13 years old. And uh, of course, I still had English around me, uh, you know, TV and friends uh, who, who lived abroad and things like that. But um, I, I, you know, English became a sort of uh, 
receding language for me for, for over a decade uh, when I only spoke Swedish. Um, so a lot of the things that you learn, um, the kind of vocabulary that emerges in, you know, during your, your coming of age, uh, if you like, when you start to deepen your knowledge in, uh, in, in yeah, for different people's different things. Um, but I noticed that my English, um, I, I lose vocabulary when it comes to things like idioms or, or nature and animals. Um, I find it easier to go to Swedish for those kinds of things. Um, so yeah, <laughs> a very long answer to a simple question, but I, I, um, I, I speak uh, those, those five languages. Um, I'm, it might be interesting to, to say that, uh, to share a little bit about why I speak the other languages. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I speak Finnish because my mother was Finnish um, and she always spoke Finnish to me. Um, but I've never lived in Finland. So as I just described, I, I lived in Sweden for over a decade. Um, but Finnish is, is kind of my very first language that I was spoken uh, to as a baby already. Um, so that will always stay with me, as was Swedish. Um, but uh, Spanish, I started studying in high school, and then I moved to Spain for a year to, to, to really cement it. Um, and German, I speak on a, I will emphasize a conversational level because my parents met in Germany, in Hamburg, where they were students. And they uh, always spoke German to each other and to me. Um, so our kind of, of you know, breakfast table would consist of my parents speaking in, in German to themselves and to me, and I would reply uh, intermittently in, in English, um, or if I was only speaking to my, replying to my mom, I would reply in Finnish. So, uh, yeah, so German is also a language that I sort of, I have it in my, in, in my, in my bones, um, but I've never lived in Germany or sort of had to, to really use it on a conversational or in, in speech or writing or anything like that. I'm so glad I asked this question. That was just a, a fun way to sort of help people understand that you're bringing this very different lens. And that was more than I even imagined. It was amazing. You know, um, I, I want to just talk about predating your book. You, you really are somebody that brings this very unique lens because you have such a, such a widened embrace to so many different ways of seeing the world from so many different lands. And you speak about Black feminism with this different lens and started writing a blog about it. How do you think that this way of moving around the world, all these different language exposures, has shaped the way that you think of Black feminism? Thank you. That's such a great question, as was the previous one. I'm already uh, <laughs> really feeling this podcast. And, um, yeah. Um, how is that shaped? How has my multiple uh, experiences or multiple perspectives in life shaped my Black feminism? Um, I guess one of the things that has defined my life um, is, is this sense of not fitting in. Um, and this is true for very many people, but I guess for me, the, the sense of not fitting in was always connected to 
the kind of multiple backgrounds uh, that I embody. So being of mixed ethnicity, Finnish and Nigerian, and then growing up in, in different parts of the world. Um, from Sweden, I moved to Spain, and then from Spain to New York, where I lived for three years, and then I moved to London, where I still am. And I, I've been kind of, uh, before the, the pandemic, I was splitting my time between Lagos and London. Um, there was the question of multiple languages, and then also I grew up in an interfaith household. Um, I, I lived on a family compound as a child, um, which is a kind of a traditional Yoruba way of living. And um, uh, my dad's Muslim, my mother was a Protestant. Um, I had aunties and cousins living in the house who were Catholic. Um, and so there was always uh, a sense that, you know, in, in, that I wasn't um, 100% this, that, or the other. I've never been, you know, I wasn't a devoted Christian or Muslim, or I wasn't 100% of Yoruba ethnicity or Finnish ethnicity. And uh, the languages that I spoke sort of intermingled in my, in my psyche and in my soul and mind. Um, and so I share all this because I, I feel like this is connected to Black feminism in the sense that um, when I first encountered Black feminist work, um, what I felt really viscerally um, and powerfully was a sense that I fit in. You know, I, I felt that this was a world in which I guess my multiplicity and then my experiences, uh, uh, of course, uh, as, as a woman um, and as a person of color and all of that, um, there, was, there was space for that. Um, but of course, uh, you know, as you allude to, I, I come to Black feminism with my own unique perspective. And um, so it's a, I guess Black feminism almost, uh, is, it's, it's something that I'm in this reciprocal uh, relationship with, which is, uh, you know, it's a very complex relationship. It's, um, I, don't, I don't want to imply that it's, it's straightforward um, uh, because, that has to do with um, the way that blackness uh, has come to be understood in the world. And, and that is also something that's continually in flux. Um, but but at, at, in this present moment, um, and, and, and this is perhaps more true to, to what it was perceived as when I first encountered black feminism, but, but blackness right now is, um, very much tied to the African-American um, experience and the kind of uh, definitions of, of blackness as uh, African-Americans have formulated them. Um, and the way that blackness would be formulated in, in a kind of uh, diasporic uh, sensibility outside of America and in the African continent um, certainly overlaps and is connected. They're, they would be, uh, you know, um, contexts, sort of dialectic contexts that are siblings, um, but there are also differences. And so when, with a subtitle, for instance, in my, in, in my book, Sensuous Knowledge, and the subtitle being a black feminist approach for everyone, um, I think quite often when people uh, see that subtitle, there's in some sense a, a predefined uh, assumption of what that might mean. And what that assumption entails is quite often uh, the way that 
blackness and black feminism even to be more specific has been defined in an American context um, and I you know I, I come from that context in, in, in many ways my book is a kind of uh, it's a love letter to African-American feminists um, who have you know they have as I said it was a, it, it, it was so many uh, African-American thinkers in whose work I found that sense of fitting in and I found a home not exclusively but you know a, a great deal the, the Toni Morrison's and Angela Davis's and Bell Hooks and uh, you know and I cite these these thinkers thoroughly through the book because uh, or not because it just um, you know it is in that sense of kind of uh, my way of paying honor to, to that tradition but I'm also um, being you know coming with all these multiple perspectives I'm also kind of uh, I don't want to use the word challenging, it's not quite the right word, but there's also, or I'll just use it. Um, I'm also kind of challenging that that would be, uh, that, 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 that that kind of origin of black feminism would be the only one or even the main one. Um, and so somebody like like me, who's you know Scandinavian, African, and all of the other multiple identities that I, that I have traversed through, through life as, um, is also uh, you know, a shaper of, of this thing that we call black feminism. So this may be an incredibly capitalist way to couch this question. I'm sort of checking myself a little bit. I'm like, Tracy, why are you asking that question? First, I, I hear the love letter. When I read your book, I hear the love letter. I almost feel that you help folks reading your book also fall in love with Black feminism because you help us understand, I'm going to say a really woo word, but spiritually what black feminism has to offer all of us, if we could actually see beyond the headlines of the day, right? And 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 as you've said in, in other interviews, not center whiteness as you're talking about black feminism, but center black feminism, black feminism as you're talking about black feminism. Um, so it almost to me as I was reading it, it felt like a, a guidepost for my own heart's expansion in a way of things that whiteness maybe has limited in me. And while I don't have the same, my, I'm finding a really strange phenomena. For me, I'm finding a lot of solace in some trans thinkers. I'm super into the trans movement. So my outsiderness has been quenched by thinkers in the trans community, um, similar to how your outsiderness was quenched by your heroes in African-American feminism. Um, but the question that I have for you is, what do you hope your impact is? You know, you started this blog, Miss Afropolitan, and were you writing that for you? Or were you writing that to challenge or something else? Both, um, both and something else. <laughs> um, so I was writing it for me and so far as, Writing is um, a way to understand things for me. I think, you know, more than anything, when I when I sit down to write or stand up to write, <laughs> you know, do whatever to write, um, I, um, I I I think the closest kind of analogy to how I feel when I'm writing is a bit like an archaeologist might feel when they're trying to find uh, some very specific object and they have to you know, sort of excavate everything that's that's in the way and remove obstacles in order to, to gain the kind of clarity of how they might find their, their object. Um, and for me, that object would be some kind of truth. Um, 
uh, and and so I have to I'm, I'm kind of trying to get to some kind of truth and in the process I'm excavating uh, the, the patriarchal conditioning uh, within myself and in outside society um, and so on and so in in that sense I think I was always driven um, to write uh, and to write my blog uh, as you're asking about specifically um, with the sense that with some kind of sense of uh, growth uh, for, uh, on a personal scale um, but I guess recognizing that that process of, of growth um, which I increasingly do and I don't know if I intentionally uh, set out to do this but the, like a personal process of growth is of course uh, completely tied to a collective process of growth and uh, many of the, the issues that I have grappled with in my writing and on my blog are uh, of course you know by nature of us living in a, in a shared ecology um, in which we are conditioned according to um, quite arbitrary ultimately quite arbitrary um, uh, sort of um, labels and identities uh, but nevertheless, that means that the, the, the issues that I was grappling with um, are issues that people, especially people like me, but also, you know, many others uh, are grappling with. And I, I'm, I'm very much motivated to the kind of collective exploration. So I wouldn't say that I was writing my blogs for... Um, for others in that sense of like, this is what others might want to read about, but rather in the sense of, I would like to have a conversation with others um, about things that I suspect they too are experiencing because I am experiencing them and they're weighing on me or they are giving me a sense of hope or whatever it might be. Um, and then I also started the blog out of frustration and, and rage maybe even. Um, because of the, you know, the the the, the state of uh, exclusion that black women face uh, in, especially in the ideas world, um, which is a world that I very much see myself as as contributing to, as well as the the kind of feminist uh, theory and feminist activism world, and and I don't mean to imply that these worlds are not always like overlapping, but there is also in the culture kind of a, a bit of a, like a, a distinct kind of ideas world. And um, black women's voices are uh, still, uh, even though it's better these days, but they're still really uh, marginalized. Uh, and so I started the blog also with that sense of frustration about that. Um, and, it was it was a, a very you know interesting time compared to now because it, I started the uh, Miss Afropolitan in 2010 and um, the blogs were still relatively new at the time they were very organic like I didn't spend time sort of I didn't have a marketing plan or a marketing goal for the blog it was just I I discovered the technology and I you know was instantly drawn to to voicing my opinions in that space. Um, and then I was also aware that there, I, I'd been writing uh, other blogs for about three years at the time. So I did know the, what we call the blogosphere um, quite well. And I knew that it was that the blogosphere was, was uh, when it came to, to feminism, it was um, 
you know, most feminist bloggers were white. Um, and when it came to Pan-Africanism and African studies, most bloggers were male. Um, and so I, I, I think intuitively I, I felt a need, I, I sensed that there was a need uh, for voices in the blogosphere that, that kind of were intersectional, which is the word we use now, but didn't really have them. So I'm having so many thoughts. I'm hearing this beautiful intention of growth that includes making room for your rage, but also making room for grappling. You know, there's something in, as I read your writing, you kind of give us all permission to grapple rather than being spoon-fed what we should believe. It's almost like you're inviting us to learn to think for ourselves, but at least pointing out through your archaeological deep dives that when you're when you're grappling, here's some of the voices that you haven't heard. Make sure that you include them. I mean, so maybe this is where we start talking about a little bit about your book or pieces of your book. But I, Mina, I'm not going to be able to like fully digest just the idea that my entire conception of the word soul. I'm frankly still pissed off about it. Everything that I've known about soulfulness has been learned from white men. And I don't know what to do with that right now. <laughs> I don't think you, you necessarily give a, a prescription, but there's something about how you treat these, these topics that invite some discomfort and inner wrestling to me anyway. Is that your intention? Do you think, or I don't know, what's it like to hear that? Well, it's, it's really um, flattering or is it, no, that's not even, even true. Flattering is not the word. It's very um, assuring and comforting. Um, flattering just sounds a bit forced, you know, because what I, what I really felt when you said that I'm inviting you to grapple and hopefully other readers as well, um, that feels very assuring to me. Um, and, and I kind of feel like um, at least, you know, I've, I've communicated what I'm working very hard to communicate to at least one reader, and that means a lot to me. Um, yeah, it's 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 intentional, but it's intentional um, in a kind of in a way as if you know, if you uh, let's see if I can make this analogy work. So if if you were in a in a in a house, a beautiful house, let's say with windows uh, one set of windows facing east and the other west. Um, and you looked out of one window and there was you know, this, this really enchanting world and the sun was shining. There's a lot of beauty and a lot of entertainment and uh, excitement. Um, but then you walk to the other side of the house and look through the other window and there was a blazing fire that seems to be approaching. Um, and you, know, you kept sort of gravitating to the window through which she could just view the, the excitement and, and the shining sun and the glamour or whatever. Um, I, I kind of have that sense of being in that kind of abode, um, living in, in Europatriarchy. And I guess what I, having that sense of, of being torn between the world as it is, you know, as it manifests beautifully and there's so much to be hopeful about and so much to still feel like we can reimagine, reinvent, 
and at the same time just seeing this, this fire coming at her. Um, it, if, if that were you in, in that house, I would run to you and say, look, look, like, look at these different perspectives where you have to do something about the fire. Um, and it's that kind of feeling that I have when, when I'm writing about the, the topics that I write about, um, that I, I don't want the reader to, I want the window with the beauty and the amazement uh, and, and, and the love and comfort and reassurance and all of that to be wide open. I don't want to quench that in, in the reader. Um, but I also want to make them sort of strongly aware that they need to grapple like, with the fire on the other side of the house. So I'm just going to repeat that for everyone listening, that, that there's an invitation for us all to grapple with the fire, to grapple with the fire. You know, I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area, and when I was in grad school, uh, this was, what was this, 18 years ago, 19 years ago, you know, it was the height of the spiritual bypassing movement, <laughs> where you just use pleasurable spirituality and positive vibes and meditating away all your problems to not wrestle with fire, but to avoid fire at all costs. I think there's still some of that going on, but you know, some other voices have entered in to have us really learn that these spiritual tools are actually designed to help you stay in the fire, not avoid the fire. Mm -hmm. Stay in listening to diverse perspectives, not silo into people that think and, and look and talk just like you. Um, it, which takes me in another, I want to talk a little bit about sensuous knowledge and first ask you, why did you write the book? Was it part of the same grappling? Or was there some other call in you? Uh, yeah, there, it's definitely part of the same grappling um, and the same, I guess I've been speaking quite a bit about uh, motivation and, and the drive that comes from within quite intuitively. Um, I think that that's quite often how my work comes to me. Um, I, don't, mm -hmm. I don't deliberate on what I'm going to, to write about very much. So I, I, I deliberate a lot about um, on what, I'm, what I may be experiencing in any given moment, what is happening in the world. Um, you know, for instance, right now, there's been this, this and I'll get to the point, <laughs> but I might go in a bit of a detour. Um, so yeah. at the moment, there's been uh, uh, this, this Met Gala um, and, you know, the, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez was there wearing a dress uh, that said tax the rich. And so uh, that's, people are talking about that a lot. And so I've been deliberating on, you know, what does, what, what, what do ideological and social movements, uh, what is the relationship between those and, uh, and the market uh, forces and things like that, right? Um, I'm not sort of driven to write anything about that right now, but probably, you know, maybe months from now or something, uh, it, it may pop up as a theme for me to write about intuitively. Um, so I don't mean to say that I don't uh, spend a lot of time like ruminating on the things that I eventually write about. It's just not typically a consecutive uh, process. And so I can't really pinpoint when exactly or why exactly I decided to write sensuous knowledge. Um, what, uh, one of the moments that that became clear to me was 
when I was writing it, I in in the chapter about liberation, um, the 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 theme of that became Lauren Hill's um, Unplugged MTV Unplugged album, which came out in two thousand and one, and and I realized that in a sense I'd started writing sensuous knowledge already then, um, and that whole chapter ended up being about that album and my, my relationship what that what that album sort of did to me and what it taught me about freedom. Um, but the moment that I had that kind of intuitive instinct to write it was um, when I was in Silicon Valley, of all places, um, at the NASA. <laughs> yes, of course, you know, um, thinking of freedom and stuff like that. Um, I was at the, the Singularity University uh, to give a lecture, and the Singularity University is is based in the NASA research camp in uh, San Jose. And, um, and it was a really, uh, I think it you know, ties back a little bit to what you were saying about the, the spiritual bypassing and things like that, because it was a very, um, in many ways, nourishing environment for me. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I, I'm working in the world of ideas um, and I don't, because it's such a, a, a kind of cliquey world, um, it, and, and because you know when you work as a, a, a as a black or woman anything, so as a black feminist or a woman writer, um, you're instantly kind of even more uh, you're ostracized even more from other communities that you might also belong to, and so being in this very sort of deliberately ideas space. Um, was thrilling for me and my, you know, my, my brain cells were just so stimulated was, people were just presenting all these big ideas for the future and, um, and there was also a, a kind of spiritual um, side which I've never been to Los Angeles but I imagine like this was the closest I ever got to that kind of LA culture of, you know there was yoga in the mornings and all the food was vegan and healthy and um, and I practiced, I practiced yoga for very long. So in so many ways, this felt um, really, really wonderful space to be in for me. Um, but then simultaneously, it was one of the most terrifying spaces to be in um, because, uh, you know, these are really the people who are shaping the future and they had so many blind spots and so much um, what I call uh, unconscious bias over I don't like to easily kind of or lazily maybe go to phrases like that because they can mean so many things to different people. But um, you know, I can to concretize. There was a, a specific conversation that I had that I found really jarring, which was um, with a group of people who were uh, they started talking about the insurance that they were getting and how um, it was insurance that was predicated upon them living until they were in their mid hundreds and 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 I never really conceived this idea that, you know, we might be able to surpass death until we're 150 years old or something was like something people already are counting on. Um, and, you know, coming from the part of the world where, or a part of the world where uh, the, the, the life expectancy is still sort of, you know, fifth in, in a person's 50s, um, this just was one of those uh, moments that really hit home of how, the, the, these, the set of people, however many uh, humanistically informed ideas they come up with, 
are not going to be able to take us to that place that they themselves are proponents of in many ways um, because of these blind spots and biases. Um, and the next day after that conversation, I was, uh, I was swimming in, in a swimming pool at the NASA Research Center. And, um, and it was a lovely pool. I really enjoyed swimming there during my stay. And I, I, I was swimming and this phrase, sensuous knowledge, um, appeared in my mind. And, um, and I knew instantly that it was the title of the book. Um, and yeah, so <laughs> I guess like the, I can't tell you the very many, you know, the, the, the incidents or motivations that, that led up to that particular moment in which the book became uh, an almost material object uh, in my mind. Um, but yeah, that was the, that was the intuitive um, moment that it, all, that it all started. You know, as I listen to you, I can, I can, now, uh, so now I'm thinking in images, I'm getting all kinds of pictures as I listen to you. I'm feeling a little sad too, ironically. Um, there's this, this way in which I, I, I hear you saying there are these people with so much power and influence. And as you were digesting their blind spots, there's some real wisdom that came, which is how do we reclaim or come from, come out of our blind spots? And it comes from the knowledge that we gain sensuously. And I love where you really took Audre Lorde's words and added to it in your book, you said, look, here's what the master's tools are not. Mm. <laughs> and here's what we need to, you know, and this is where maybe you are a little prescriptive, but I, in, in, in a great way that we need to invite more eros into our life, more play, more poetry, borderlessness, dialogue, intuition. You talked about interbeing and harmony and it needs to become a practice and why I was picking on myself when I asked you the question, why did you write the book, is because that's a very Europatriarchal question. There's nothing about my question that's about sensuous knowledge, because what, you're, what I heard you say is, I wrote the book from a place of deep interbeing. It came out of me from this connection to the land and to stories and to people and to poetry and to eros and to my rage and all the things that make a make one sensuous. And so it's it's very white of me <laughs> to ask you, well, what's your motivation, Nina? What's the outcome? How much money are you gonna make on this book? You know? Well, well, you didn't um, ask those latter questions. Uh, and uh, <laughs> the question you did ask did lead to um to uh, I mean I found it quite quite um worthy well, to I go like back to pick on and, myself. Because I like to demo to other white folks how to do that. <laughs> so just a I know. Yeah. Um, but I do think there's this invitation that how we move from our unconscious bias is that we do have to begin to learn a different kind of knowledge. And we have to make it a regular practice where we're listening to more stories, the land, people from different viewpoints. Uh, our own bodies, you know, I, I was really moved by that. I don't think I've mastered it. I suck at it, frankly, <laughs> but I'm inspired. <laughs> I, it, it is such a difficult process, I think, to, to master. I mean, one of the things about writing this book, um, for me, like it's been really life-changing um, in the sense that it's, I've kind of given myself uh, a project, a way of seeing um, that, of course, you know, to some extent, I was already 
uh, at least attempting to embody and have some uh, feeling of what it meant, but in articulating it um, in the book and actually very much, uh, like equally much almost uh, in the conversations that I've had after writing the book, such as this one, um, you know, it's a kind of, for me as the author, I see it uh, myself as a kind of lifelong uh, project um, to, or way of way of knowing to, to have to carry with me and to, 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 to develop. I think part of what um, I, I what, what drove me to write the book actually, you know, going back to that question, which I don't think is, is altogether a bad question, to be honest, um, is wanting to think up uh, or to conjure a way of knowing that is simultaneously utopian and pragmatic. Um, there's, there's a lot of radical ideas in the world, um, many of which I'm really inspired by and thankful for, um, but I also, many that I also can feel uh, are impracticable. Um, and I, I sometimes approach more as poems or something to kind of plant a seed of something. And I find that very useful. And, and my book is also that to some extent, but. But I also, um, I've always been drawn, I'm, I'm, I'm a pragmatist, uh, as well as a, a, I don't call myself a poet, but my very first published work was a collection of poems. Um, so there's some part of me that is drawn to the poetic. Um, I call you a philosopher. That's what I, how I reference you. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's flattering. <laughs> there I can use that word, certainly, uh, flattering. Um, yeah, but I, um, that kind of, the, and actually it also goes back a little bit to what, when you said that I was being uh, descriptive to, to an extent in the book, um, which is, it's another, another way that I could talk about these kind of conflicting sides in me to some extent conflicting is that um, I have a, a very pedagogical um, approach and sensibility, which may have to do with the fact that my mother is a teacher, um, but I also have a, a, a side to me, which um, just wants to be in the kind of the lyrical and, you know, and the, and the, the, the craft that writing is. Um, and a, a third way, that I sometimes uh, half jokingly say is, you know, it's the kind of Finnish and Nigerian in me. Um, so Finns are stereotype, it's a stereotype that we are typically um, introverted and, you know, quite reclusive and uh, like to, to sort of withdraw from society a little bit. Um, whereas Nigerians are the very opposite stereotypically, you know, very exuberant and uh, boisterous and, and, and bringing all of these, um, sensibilities into one is kind of what informs or what I might call a kind of pragmatic utopian um, feeling that I wanted the, the book to to convey so so yeah like, um, addressing uh, bringing our bringing a way to to live or, or, or knowing that it is urgent to like going back to the house with the fire on one side um, and recognizing the urgency of learning to communicate with each other, like to really talk, um, not just have, uh, you know, panels or inter academic inter-exchange or whatever, but to really have 
know, to really talk to each other and knowing that we have to also really talk with the more than human world um, and to just expand into our bodies. Um, and yet that, that process has to also um, sort of have a, a bit of a light, maybe a light padding around, um, something that, that kind of grounds it in, in the political, um, in the psychosocial and, and all of these, these worlds that, that um, I, I sometimes say that sensuous knowledge is, a, is, is kind of synthesizing the political and the aesthetic, uh, the political being uh, things like, aside from politics, obviously, but also the economy and uh, technology and science and all of the things that we afford gravitas to. And then the aesthetic being the, the arts, poetry, uh, eroticism, the body, um, and sort of fusing those two so that we can uh, build a way of knowing an epistemy from, uh, in a way that actually is practicable, um, if not easily practicable. Um, that it, to, to your point of like it being a, a project that's not always simple, I, I was uh, struggling very much with writing a, one of the chapters in the book. Um, I was laboring you know, for, for months on end and I just couldn't get it right. Actually the first one um, on knowledge. And, and then I uh, one day was doing yoga and you know, just as I was doing some stretch, uh, the, this issue that had been really vexing with me was um, became, became somehow so lucid and clear. Um, and I realized that, you know, for all that time, I'd just been in my mind, in my brain, trying to find the solution. Um, and I was trying to explain, I was trying to theorize a way of knowing that incorporates the body while completely being in my head. Um, and it wasn't until I brought my body into the process. That yeah, me. I mean, you know, so it's, it's, it's definitely a process. <laughs> well, I know we're at uh, the end of time. I could talk with you. And forever, long, long, long. I hope I get to meet you at another Emerge event at some point. But um, we have this tradition. Um, it's sort of fitting that we just were talking about other ways of knowing and being embodied because, you know, that's what we do when we listen on the sidewalk. I, I think marketing folks and fundraisers try to turn sidewalk talk into a bunch of people trying to go out and help other people, but actually it's the people that are listening that are practicing a new way of being in the world. It's actually what the project is about. And so I get out of the way here at this point of the, and I hand off the mic to you and say, hey, Mina, what would you wanna say to the 8,000 folks that have sat on sidewalks around the world as part of Sidewalk Talk, either a wish, or words of wisdom as our ritual for how we end our conversation. Thank you, Tracy. I uh, could also carry on this conversation for much longer. Um, and thank you for the chance to, um, to offer something to, to people listening on the sidewalks. Um, I'm completely unprepared for this, but, um, but I will say that um, there's, there's sort of, uh, the inner world and the things that you choose to pay attention to, the things that you choose to be preoccupied with, um, those are the spaces which 
have not been taken over. Um, and to different people, um, who is doing the taking over, who is the oppressor, if you like, is going to look different. It could be, uh, you know, kind of systemic power, the patriarchy, it could be somebody in your, uh, in your, you know, you have a relationship with somebody in your family. Um, but whoever that might be, or whatever that might be, um, the one space that they have not conquered is what is within you and, um, and what you choose to care about and what you choose to pay attention to. And, um, and so it's very important, it's incredibly important that you, um, that you cater to that space and, and that you have ownership of that space. And it's by no means uh, a space that isn't uh, you know, full of, of complex feelings. Um, you know, it's, it's that inner world where joy resides, but also sorrow and suffering. Um, but it's, it's the space you own. And, and it's in some sense, um, this isn't just about you. I think that in, in, in this realization, maybe some snippet of how we also collectively start to, to listen to each other. Because when I see that, uh, when I'm in contact with that internal space in me, um, I'm more readily able to see that space in another person and to communicate with them from, from that place. Hope that. <laughs> that made sense. I'm glad that you did not have any anything prepared that was so beautiful and yeah, I feel a little freer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we could have all other conversation about what it's been like to be a woman leading this project and yeah, women in leadership mm-hmm. is a whole other thing. Mina, um, thanks so much for the work that you do in the world, for wrestling with big questions and inviting us to wrestle too. And for everyone that's listening, you can look in the show notes and we'll have links to Miss Afropolitan, to some of Lena, Mina's talks and some of Mina's um, writings outside of her book and links to her book. So thanks again, Mina, for being here with us. Thank you so much, Tracy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.